0: Welcome to the Bad Tutors Podcast. If you're here for the newest up-to-date information on the nerdy topics that are near and dear to your heart, well, let me tell you, you ended up in the wrong place. Here we are all about hot takes grandiose displays of misinformation, so stick along for the ride and you might just blow a blood vessel or two. For this episode, I will be giving Tyler a deeper look into the different factions that reside in Malifaux, what their goals are, and some of the key characters for each of them. Now... To preface this, I just finished reading the first book of the first edition of Malifaux. So while I may touch on some of the newer content, I will mainly be centering around the factions that are present in 1E, which include the Guild, the Resurrectionists, the Neverborn, and the Outcasts. I know that the Ten Thunders, the Bayou, and the Explorer Society are introduced later on in different expansions, uh in different editions even but i'm a slow reader so get off my back uh this is what i know about them so far and that is how the breakdown will continue there will be some things included there will be some things that are not included but without further ado let's hop into it so we're going to start off with the guild now we talked a little bit about the guild before they're kind of the biggest driving force in malifaux realistically um they're kind of the most cut and dry when it comes to their goals. They more or less are just about finding out all about the soul stones and making sure they are making money off of them. Like we said before, so long as the soul stones flow, they don't really care what happens as long as everyone is in in ridiculous danger. Like as long as they're making money, they're more or less yeah. Happy they're with cutthroat things.
1: capitalists
0: and uh, exactly and they kind of gave rise to most of the other factions realistically as well them being around Um, so as I talk about the guild there is going to be a lot of kind of crossover with the other guild with the other factions a little bit less so than there will be when I talk specifically about the other factions Um, so as we've kind of said they're just kind of this rich and powerful thing they're pretty authoritarian strict rules um, kind of uh, pretty archaic views on how magic should be used even like within the guild itself like obviously they don't allow people outside of the guild to have any soul stones anything like that but even within the guild they're still pretty um, I guess set in the ways of the earth like the earth had its own magical inherent magical abilities And they haven't really wanted to move past that. I have the feeling that they kind of view that as like unnatural or going against the common grain of magic and how they believe it should be used. And that has given a lot of rise to their enemies.
1: I can imagine that anybody who's innovative would look at magic and see it as being limited by the guild.
0: Exactly. And that is actually where the Arcanists come from. The Arcanists are a completely separate... Honestly, I'm going to get into it, of course. They're almost like the other side of the coin of the guild in my opinion. They're the same thing, but pro-magic and kind of a little bit more for the people, but they still have that very kind of common goal of it, just mixed in with a little bit more magic. So... When it came to the guild and all of their enemies, the main three enemies that they have so far are the Neverborn, the Arcanists, and the Resurrectionists. So, out of your stock standard guild soldier, there are different branches or divisions, whatever your word would want to be, for the different people to combat those organizations for the resurrectionists you have the death marshals for the neverborn you have the oh so creatively named neverborn hunters and for the arcanists you have the witch hunters all of these different sects have like kind of pretty purpose-driven ways to combat specifically the faction that they're going against the first one we'll talk about is the neverborn hunters they are kind of the most simple of the three ironically because the neverborn when you really get down to it are kind of the biggest threat in malifo they don't give a shit who you are if you're not Neverborn, they're probably not a fan of you and they probably want to kill you they don't want you in malifo so it's a little weird that they're kind of the simplest to explain As a
1: recap um the neverborn are the Uh, sort of undead that naturally occur in Malifaux, correct?
0: They are not exactly undead. That is kind of how people first viewed them when they started discovering them. They are, from what I've seen, more akin to almost demons in a lot of ways. They're a more powerful breed of creature than, say, humans or anything else that we've really seen gotcha in Malafo. they i'll again i'll talk about it a little more more than likely from what i've read they are the thing that caused the initial death of everything in gotcha. Malafo. or if not the first one certainly when the guild went in for the first time and then got absolutely shit on that was more than likely the neverborn doing that so they are just incredibly powerful demon like creatures they can kind of like come in a variety of different shapes and sizes of course and then a couple of the like higher more powerful ones even appear uh very humanoid as well and almost impossible to distinguish from any other human unless you have like a very trained eye and know what you're looking for type of thing So, the Neverborn Hunters were one of the first things that uh, the Guild decided that they needed as they knew that the Neverborn were a threat. Uh, They are also one of the more respected of the Guild by, like, the populace of Malifaux, uh, since everyone knows that the Neverborn are this massive threat. Um, It's almost used as, like, a propaganda piece of, like, look what the Neverborn Hunters did. Like, they were really able to shut this down and, like really do good for the world under the guise of the guild. Not under the guise of the guild, but, like, under the command of the guild. Look at how good the guild is doing. It's there. Look yeah. at how great we are, guys. Don't worry about the uh, all the fuck shit that's happening behind the scenes that's literally killing all of you. Um, don't worry about that. We're killing the demons. Don't you... It's fine. So... The biggest one to talk about so far, and she hasn't even had a story yet, but I know that she and her family continue into the third edition, so they're going to be a very big part quickly, I'm sure. This is Perdita Ortega. She is, like, really kind of your classic Wild West badass bounty hunter. Um, When they first started having the Neverborn threat the guild just kind of decided we're going to deputize fucking anyone that feels like they want to help combat this threat. If you feel like you have the skill to come take this on and do good for us, get in here. You're an officer of the guild or whatever title they were going to give them. And Perdita is one of the biggest ones to come of this. She was incredibly good at her job on her own very good. Uh, She kind of became like a celebrity, basically, in Malifaux. Uh, Everyone knew who she was, knew what she did, knew how powerful she was and how well she could fight the Neverborn. And as her bounties got more and more powerful, more and more riches to be gained out of them, uh, she actually started to bring in her family as well, which they allowed her with the communication, just in general and being a family unit, they were able to set up like a lot of crossfire lanes, big ambushes in just like a fucking sheer force of bullets and craziness to really just bring down whatever Neverborn they were tasked with hunting. Uh, I, I say that she really learned from Dominic Toretto since her tabletop keyword is family. Uh, She brings in the likes of Nino Ortega, Francisco Ortega, Abuelo Ortega, and probably what is one of my favorite names that I've seen so far in Malifaux is Papa Loco, (laughs) and he's just a fucking lunatic with a lot of dynamite. Love me some bombs. Which, how fun. Exactly. Like, it's going to be a great time. And I know that all of those characters, at least all of those characters that I just named, do continue. They are playable in the third edition of Malifaux. Um, And I only say that because there is a section of Malifaux called Dead Man's Hand. These are masters that have died in the story. Masters are um, your leader in the tabletop game, which... In the lore kind of just translates to an important character in the story more or less um all of them are still playable i won't spoil the couple people that i know are in the dead okay. man's hand um but i know that in one story it kills fucking three of them so that's gonna be hype when i Ooh, get shit. there that's gonna be a lot i'm sure that's pretty much the neverborn hunters uh like i said the first book. Didn't have any stories about Perdita, but it had a breakdown on all of the 1E Masters that it had in at launch, I assume. So it was okay. three for each faction. So that's kind of all we really know about the Neverborn Hunters right now. Also, there isn't really a lot known about the Neverborn in general. They're, like, pretty secretive overall, so it, there isn't a ton to know about them. There's just little snippets here and there that we kind of okay. learn about them. So next we have the witch hunters. And these are the people that combat the Arcanists. And people do not like them. The population of Malafo is not a fan of the witch hunters in general. And this comes from the fact that the Arcanists, while being like technically a criminal syndicate, that's what they are, especially in like the eyes of the guild, because they are They use the Miners and Steamfitters Union as the front to do all of their work. So they are kind of like, to get into it just a little bit, they have like their own flow of soul stones that they're making money off of. This is all of the magic users. It's kind of like a refuge for the magic users of the world as well. If you find that you have powers, you probably have like kind of an explosive episode for a second where you don't know how strong you are and something happens. And those people kind of really go to the arms of the Arcanists and they take them in. And it's like, Oh, we'll take care of you. Don't worry. You just have to do this job. for us. So they, uh, the people that that have a natural
1: affinity to magic, if I'm understanding this correctly, go through like a sort of, um, spark where, uh, they discover their magical powers
0: It seems that. That sounds an awful
1: lot like Planeswalkers from Magic the Gathering. Yeah, and in in, uh, in Magic the Gathering, all the Planeswalkers go through a traumatic event, and then uh, it causes their spark uh, to ignite, which is where they get their power from. Uh, And usually, when their spark ignites, they uncontrollably uh, Planeswalk into a different plane.
0: Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, from what I've read, that definitely sounds very similar, minus the planeswalking. But, yeah, they kind of have that, the big spark, something like that. But then, obviously, the guild doesn't like magic outside of the guild itself. So, even if they are seeking you out to, like, maybe recruit you, which I don't think actually happens. That's optimistic. just me being yeah. a little optimistic, hoping that the guild isn't actually just total shit realistically, but I don't think they do. I think they kind of lock you up and put you in the gulag as soon as you find magic. Yeah, based on the setting itself,
1: that's safe to assume.
0: Exactly. But if you don't get caught by them, you either go to the Arcanists or hope the Arcanists find you and then they'll help you out. And... Even if you're, like, doing jobs for them, it's still better than being in a fucking guild gulag. Like, it's better than nothing at the very least. It has to be that kind of a thing. Um. So when they're doing that, especially because they use the miners and Steamfitters Union, which is, like, you know, all of the miners, all the people working to find mm-hmm. soul, soul stones for the guild, they're kind of viewed as, like, a Robin Hood type of a thing. So the Witch Hunters really aren't that well liked because they're often very shady about their practices and they still use magic. Like they absolutely use magic because how are you going to fight magic without using magic yourself, especially in a world where it's literally like a golden age of magic. So that'd just be incredibly tough to deal with. So they still have to use that on their own. So people don't really like them. They're often viewed as not, I don't want to say evil, but like kind of almost an evil thing mm. with it, realistically. And the one person that we have for the Witch Hunters is Sonya Creed. This is actually the another set that I just bought recently. Um, she has a really big fucking flaming sword And she's kind of cool as hell. She's very uh, progressive in her views of magic. She realizes that the guild is very archaic in how they do things. And if they're going to continue to combat this and even further their own power, you really have to be able to keep going. You can't stop innovating on magic. So she has kind of a very cool take on all of this that I really like. Wait, is she a witch hunter? uh, What it? She is a witch That's, hunter. like, such yeah.
1: a weird um, philosophy for witch hunter to have then, right?
0: It is isn't. it isn't. It definitely is in the eyes of the guild. And, like, in the couple stories that she's had, she's even, like, kind of butted heads with a couple of the other higher-ups in the guild about how she does things and, like, what her goals are. Kind of like a, you're thinking more about your own goals okay. than the goals of the guild. But to be able to fight the new magics that the arcanists are coming out with, she kind of has to be like to be able to keep fighting new and more powerful magics. You can only swing a sword so hard, even if it's a giant flaming sword. Once you swing it as hard as you can, if it gets blocked, you're fucked. Like that's obviously way too literal of an interpretation, but like, you know what I mean? Like martial prowess only goes so far when you're combating the most powerful magic that anyone has come across so what kind of ends up happening with her she's the chief officer of the task force in fact and the guild kind of ends up waging like a proxy shadow war against the arcanists because they know that the miners and steamfitters Union is a front like it's not—it's re- a secret, but, like, it's not a secret. It's pretty easy to put together, especially when you're higher up in the guild. You have access to the information. But if the guild just went and tore down the doors of the people's fucking thing, there'd just be fucking mass revolts. Like, you couldn't deal with that. So they kind of have to, like, pick their battles and, like, make things look like accidents in that kind of a thing, which is th- another reason that people really don't like the witch hunters because they're just waging a fucking cold war proxy battle
1: of where can we find this stuff and where can't we you know that makes sense they can't just um like take an active stance against the public because then you know in the public eye any sort of good favor that they may have had uh just instantly turns into like uh like a bad press situation i get it
0: Exactly. So finally, we have the last division of the Guild's forces outside of just their like general rank and file boys, the Death Marshals. Now, these are the guys that are trained and made to fight the resurrectionists, the necromancers of the world. Now, I'm fairly certain that Death Marshal is in fact just a title. Like, uh, someone can hold the title of death marshal. But there are also literal death marshals. Which, so far, and we've talked about how cool some of the models are in this game. This is one of my favorite ones so far. Uh, I'm going to link you a picture of it real quick. These are guys. They are Ghost Rider. They are Ghost Rider with literal coffins strapped to Holy their back. Shit. They have a massive <laughs> fucking Peacebringer revolver with it's a yeah. little cut out in that picture with a giant blade off the front of it. And they this guy in the picture I sent you, he's standing on a coffin. They're normally strapped to their back. And from what I've read so far, that is not for aesthetic value. They fight with them actively And it's the coolest shit I've seen in a long time. Not only will they just, like, swing it in the goddamn face of some zombies... Or undead, sorry. um, Which they absolutely do. They'll just slam it into their face, blunt force trauma, and just kill the fuck out of them. But they've also used them to, like, kick out their legs with the door open and then trip them up into it and then seal them into it and then they have obviously like a bunch of magic yeah. and stuff tied to it. But it's just fucking cool as shit. These guys are awesome as hell and I just never came across them before cuz at first I was like ah the guild
1: hand waving They're kind of yeah.
0: whatever. They're they're going to be the authoritarian whatever, but like that's what I really love about this world is like I'm going to talk about more things that I don't like necessarily going like oh this equals this in our world but like malifo hat does a really good job in my opinion of taking like a pretty mm-hmm. standard trope but just twisting it not even enough but like more than enough to it's like wow not only is it its own thing but like holy shit that's so much cooler than the yeah, thing we it's started it's like subvert in like a death marshal is like ghost rider but what if he just used a coffin and is like that's dope as hell yes yeah and it's like
1: it, it subverts your expectations in the best way um not in the like the cheap like oh it would make the most sense for this to happen so instead we went a different direction it's more of this is what uh you think should happen and it does happen but it's even more fucked up than you thought it would be and uh to tie the uh death marshals uh aesthetic to something that uh some listeners might know if you play league of legends um shadow isle champions Mm. hecarim thrush the flaming uh ethereal green fire that uh is like coming out of like their skulls or like their joints or what have you that is a very similar aesthetic that the death marshals have so obviously a very cool art style, um, gives them a sort of, uh, horrifying, uh, look to them. And, uh, yeah, super cool, uh, character art here for these guys. Yeah. I'm a really
0: big fan of them And to kind of tie into, um, linking them to our world. I feel like I just thought of this, to be honest. Um, I feel like a lot of the things have very similar tropes to what we use in literally our world, especially because half of Malifaux is literally on Earth, like in yeah. real world Earth. So like being able to like ground yourself into these characters and like going, oh, that's very similar to this, puts you in like a good spot of like understanding to then go forward with whatever crazy shit they also yeah, do. Yeah, it's
1: like a, a very um, smart. Uh world design choice to have it so grounded in reality that you see something and you recognize it for what it is but then after digging below surface Mm -hmm. thoughts on um like what you expect a cowboy to be or or like a similar thing like that um when you when you dig further into these factions and these characters uh there's like some really surprising twists and um uh, just like an expansion into a direction that you wouldn't expect like a cowboy setting to go like necromancy mm-hmm. in a cowboy setting it's kind of crazy right so, a lot of fun yeah a it's lot a fun of fun take as well it's very interesting
0: yeah i've been a very big fan of it so far so our character that we get for the death marshals is lady justice and as we all know Justice is blind, so Lady Justice fights blindfolded and I assume is blindfolded all of the time as well, of course, but she has a blindfold across her eyes and still is an absolutely incredible fighter throughout all of that. Even though we don't get to see them yet or I believe um, one of them is talked about very briefly. uh, Her second and technically third in command but I think they're like on the same rank more or less are the judge and the jury who are then accompanied by their loyal executioners. So we have lady justice, the judge, the jury and the executioners. And I know in the tabletop game, um, her totem, which is just a model that when you have the master, you also get the totem for free. That's just how the crew building of that game works. It is the scales of justice. And it's just a guy honestly kind of jesus out with a massive two by four across his shoulders with scales on either side so i just kind of love that as well of like oh it's like a subversion of expectations then it's like nope lady justice judge jury executioner scales of justice yeah bam done we just talked about
1: like how they uh you know, are sort of elusive in the tropes and stuff, and then they get to mm-hmm. Lady Justice, and it's just, this is exactly what you think? Don't look into it.
0: Yep. Yeah, don't read into it. She is to the point. What the guild's goals are, are what we are going to do. We are not going to deviate from that. And if you deviate from the mission, I'm going to be really upset at you, but I'm not going to do anything to you until after the mission, because that would then be deviating from the mission. Yeah. So, that wraps up the guild for now. So, kind of in a quick conclusion, like I said, they're a lot fucking cooler than I thought they were going to be. I was not expecting to like the guild all that much, especially because they seemed very tropey as opposed to anything else. But, like, I bought the 2E set for Sonya Creed. Like, they're really cool, and they've looked so far to be, like, a lot less black and white than i originally thought they were going to be which i'm really hoping we're going to see more of in the
1: future as well
0: as i can right, so i just have like a books. quick
1: question you so you bought the second mm-hmm. edition of sonya right uh didn't you also buy yeah. like the first edition of a of a set too
0: um i almost have a couple times i think i sent you the pictures for one of oh, summer right, um which is just oh my god. Uh his new models I absolutely love. A lot of the one E models, I won't lie, are pretty rough. <laughs> they are um a lot less refined than what we have right now. They're still cool, but um I mean, and it's not something that's exclusive to weird, mm-hmm. the people who make Malafaux. Uh if you look at like the original 40k minis they look like fucking trash and the sad thing about 40k is if you pay play a non imperium those of are man the only faction, models that you have you, you you still have those models yeah it's a fucking shame uh, i do have a
1: question um, regarding that's not the point of though. yeah like, the models you bought second edition but like we play third edition mm-hmm. right
0: Yes, so we do. So the only thing that matters actually, um, so long as there is still a model for it in third edition. So, for example, the Sonia Creed box comes with three witch hunters, Sonia Creed, and or three witch seekers. Sorry, and Samuel Hopkins, who is her right hand man kind of um he's even mentioned in the story but again very briefly so i don't know a ton about him yet all of those characters still exist in third edition have stat cards and everything for it so if i were to run them in the tabletop which eventually i'll paint them up and probably do especially because they're kind of the direct counter to rasputina (laughs) who feels very strong every time i've played her are yeah. played against her i should say as long as you're using the third edition rules using old models is perfectly fine to my understanding i won't speak for competitive sure. play i'm not positive on that but like i know for games workshop even with the shitstorm <laughs> they're going through you can run older edition models so long as you're still using current rules and um, specifically for a tabletop war game, so long as the size is the same, so th- that will mainly come down to bases. So say, I believe, I believe Malifaux is a twenty-eight millimeter system. So as long as you're using thirty millimeter bases, because that's where all of your measuring mm. is going to come from. Like realistically, if you have a thirty millimeter base and a rock glued onto it, and you go, that's Sonya it doesn't really matter so long as you're using the accurate measurements and all of the accurate rules gotcha. and like that so i wouldn't be able to run her with the 2e cards even though i have them it's not like i could go oh i'm gonna keep the 3e stats but i like the 2e abilities that she has that is definitely not allowed but you as long as i'm running them with third edition rules okay. that's totally fine cool so following the guild We'll talk about the Arcanists. Uh, like I said, I kind of consider them to be the guild, but from the other side of the coin. From what I kind of understand about them. So, most, if not all of them, are magic users. I don't want to say all of them are, but certainly, like, 90% of them use magic. Otherwise, why would you be an right. Arcanists? Unless you're just trying to find some money, I guess. Excuse me. So, they formed because they were very unhappy with how the guild was handling magic in the use of soul stones. Um, And now, like I said, this can be... It could definitely be viewed as a criminal syndicate, especially by the guild who 100% views them as a criminal syndicate trying to stop their flow of soul stones to create their own. Um, The leader of the Arcanists is one Dr. Victor Ramos, now, he started out as an inventor and like a pretty brilliant one at that. Um, some of his like really prominent inventions that have saved like hundreds, if not thousands of lives of the people working in Malifaux uh, start with just a mechanical canary, which pretty simple on the surface. But like when you can create a very consistent mechanical thing that tells you get the fuck out now or you will Oh, die. like a canary in a mine, people really like that. Gotcha. Exactly. But mechanical, so it won't fail as much as a bird will. And I mean, it won't die, so it can just tell you when something's there. I'm sure it can tell you what's there. It can tell you where it is, where you need to stay clear yeah. of, things like that. The second biggest thing is the Hollow Marsh Pumping Station. Now, this is what allows a lot of the mine shafts to be kept Dry and free of those pesky floods, which let me tell you, really put a damper on productivity. And they weren't <laughs> okay a fan of that. So, the pumping stations just, obviously, does what it says on the tin. Whatever water is there, it takes it and pumps it out to a safe location where it won't harm the mines at all. Which, like, you'd think, oh, a, a mine shaft closing in, people might be happy about that. It's less work. But not if two hundred people die right. as it floods, you know. Like you can't get everyone out. So having something like that has really kept a lot gotcha. of people safe. Um, and all of these kind of innovations led to him becoming the president of the Miners and Steamfitters Union, which then, of course, led to him being in control of the. Ar- or sorry, not yes, being in control of the Arcanists, but it led him to create it once he had the power to do something about it, he then formed a guild that could combat the guild itself. Gotcha. Uh, And they tend to help the community, even outside of miners and things, because they just have money. Like I said, they're almost like a Robin Hood-style faction to a lot of the citizens of Malifaux. And it's where any magic user that finds their power kind of runs to, to save themselves from just a life of fucking abject poverty and horror under the foot of the guild, pretty much. So, they fight very firmly against the guild. They not only practice magic on their own, but they are constantly seeking to find new kinds of magic, more powerful kinds of magic, refine their powers, and be better in any way they can, especially in this kind of golden age of magic we have forming with the use of soul stones. Um, Now, they do have their own streams of trading soulstones as well. They have to be able to make their own money to supply everything that they need. And I mean, even if they're not trading them, they have to have soulstones to be able to perform and practice their magic. So they have, since they're somewhat, they're not in control of the mines, but they are the miners. So you're somewhat in control, like a little bit at least. So that's like kind of a big guiding part of the arcanist is like same as the witch hunters they can't fight directly against the guild they're not powerful enough to just come out and go fuck you we're in charge now the guild could still shut them the fuck down so it's this weird give and take of like all right we're still hitting our production quotas you just don't know about the other 10 percent behind our production quotas gotcha we're hitting anyways and then just not telling
1: they're you just lining it. their pockets a little bit Nothing to see here.
0: Nothing to see. You get your money. We get gotcha. ours. Don't ask any questions. Similar to how the kind of outskirts of Malifo work. And I mean, a lot of the mines are in the outskirts, so it makes it a little easier. even. Uh, so the next master is also a member of the Arcanists, but we haven't seen much of him yet. He's popped up a little bit here and there. His name is Marcus, and he is a master of... Uh, Chimerancy is how I'm going to say it, which uh in the book is described as being able to cultivate the most desired traits of a specimen. Now this focuses on animals and creatures. I don't believe it works on people. I could be wrong, but I don't think so. Um so he tames the wild creatures of Malafo, which are already nightmarish monsters that you should avoid at all costs. And then, say he takes a tiger, right? Um, Biting. Big, strong part of the tiger. Bigger jaws, more teeth, two heads maybe? He changes them and breeds them. Breeding is the wrong word since it's magic. But crafts them to be the strongest version of themselves for the trait he's looking for, basically. Which uh when guilds take to when not guilds when the guild takes to kind of fighting them outside of the city on the outskirts of malifaux this is where he really comes into play he has a whole menagerie of monsters that he can just guerrilla warfare sick on the guild to just absolutely rip them apart
1: when okay so he would take like an offensive trait of some sort of animal or specimen and amplify that trait to make them better at it
0: yes so i so like for instance
1: if he used a a boar he would instead make their tusk Mm -hmm. sharp and metallic Mm -hmm. instead of you know arguably uh uh dull and made out of bone
0: yeah, so here. I'm going to drop you a picture. This is keyword chimera, which is his keyword. And it has two saber toothed oh, yeah. Cerberus, which as you can see are like multi headed saber toothed tigers. Uh there is Kojo the gorilla, who is this gorilla with spikes protruding out of his arms so yeah. that's like kind of i guess it doesn't even have to be like a trait that it already inherently possesses necessarily it can be something that he just wants it to have like gorillas don't have fucking spikes unless those are teeth or something yeah. in the lore i don't know exactly but like he can accentuate and like from what it looks like totally change a creature he to mutates what them he wants it to almost okay yeah Exactly, I'd say it's uh, chimerancy, obviously coming yeah. from chimera and the combination of multiple things. I'm sure um, if the people at Weird have an evil sense of humor, there's a half-girl, half-dog model Uh-oh. somewhere to piss off every Full Metal Alchemist yeah, fan that ever sad. existed. <laughs> yeah, it really would be. I kind of hope there is one, though. To be totally oh shit! Honest with you. Uh, <laughs> Uh, Just because that'd be a great fucking reference to have. Um, So finally, uh, for the Arcanists, one of the other masters that we're introduced to is Rasputina, of course, who I knew a little bit about beforehand, as we kind of mentioned in the previous episode. Um, She doesn't actually start out as an Arcanist at all. Uh, She is just a magic user that is sent to Malifaux from Earth The guild, as they do with many people, bought out her um, sentence. She was sentenced to a crime that when we're first introduced to her, she says that she can't even bring herself to talk about. And it's later hinted at and kind of revealed that she is more than likely responsible for the murder of her daughter. Oh, nice. Yeah, real fun stuff, as always. So it was wrong Uh, of
1: me to compare her to this uh, system and this world's Elsa. That was wrong of me.
0: uh, Well, I mean, yes and no. Uh, She more than likely killed her daughter. This hasn't been, like, 100% confirmed, but, like, it's pretty fucking confirmed. I'm sure there's more to it than that. It specifically mentioned that she drowned her daughter, So, I'm sure there is more to it than that. God, I'm hoping there's more to it than that. I suppose is a better way to say it. So, she was actually originally... She's a decently attractive woman. So, she was originally supposed to be sent to work in the salon houses of Malifaux. Which I'm assuming is a PC version of saying brothel. I'm not positive. It could mean something else. But regardless, um she was, quote, proving difficult to tame. So she was actually sent to the Mockets. Okay. Because she still had magical powers that could fuck with shit. Um, and then at some unknown point in time, so far at least, she made contact with an entity known as December, um, making a pact with this creature or entity, whatever it shall be mm-hmm. named. Um He gave her a lot more immense powers, excuse me, that she was eventually able to break out of the mines with and um, make her way trying to figure things out. Um, To kind of tie back into Elsa, she kind of has not control over like a native tribe, but like a really inherent connection to a native tribe that worships December as well. Okay. So there is still kind of that native aspect to it somewhere tied in there. She's only, like, briefly mentioned this. She's had some dreams where she sees them. I think she's been there, like, once or twice in person, but we don't see that in the stories as of yet. Um, She ends up being hunted by Lilith for a while, one of the heads of the Neverborn. Um, A bunch of stuff happens there. She's almost killed by Lilith, actually, because... The Neverborn uh, are actually very much against December specifically, so seeing Rasputina as kind of his point of contact into the world, a way to come back in in a physical manner, they're trying to kill Rasputina. Uh, She blacks out during the fight and ends up actually being saved by the Arcanists. Kind of taken in by Ramos a little bit and I believe talks with Marcus a little bit at first as well. Um, she agrees to start working with them but so she does become officially an arcanist but it's very much to further her own goals uh, she just views them as like a way to get soul stones to further her power to continue helping december that's like her overall goal that's what matters to her okay and the arcanists are just a means to an end for that
1: yeah That makes sense. So
0: that's that's what we know about the Arcanists so far. Their goal is um, pretty much just the opposite of the guild while doing the same. So next, we'll hop into the Neverborn. So this will be a little brief because, as I've said, they're um, pretty secretive. uh, In a lot of ways, we don't know a ton about them yet, even though we're kind of meeting their characters a little bit here and there. They're very behind-the-scenes I'm guessing it seems like they, like if you want to put a faction as bad is the enemy, it's the Neverborn. So we don't really get to know, you don't get to know the villains plans because that alleviates all tension in a story. So that's kind of where I think Neverborn are headed. Now, these are quite literally the things that go bump in the night. I know I made that analogy before, but that was before I continued reading and got into the faction breakdown. When we have a dream here on Earth, um, that is a vision to the other side of the breach into Malifaux. So that means when you have a nightmare about a monster, not only is that monster a real corporeal being, but it does actually want to kill you. They are tangible, real nightmare creatures that we see in our dreams, Earthside.
1: All right, so let me get this straight. Kind of fucking terrifying. Yeah, let me get this straight. So what you're saying is, when I have my reoccurring fever dream, which literally happens anytime I have a fever, it also happens in Malifaux. Or it exists in Malifaux, um, rather. You are
0: seeing a vision into a place in Malifaux that it is happening. Well, that's... Not that, like, your nightmare causes that to happen. It's just that you get a glimpse into it. Okay,
1: first. so what you're saying is that in Malifaux...
0: Your sleep paralysis demon is real and it actually Well, so it's not
1: a sleep paralysis demon so much as it is a devoid white space where I'm standing next to a wood Mm. chipper that's spewing wood chips all over the ground. And I look at the ground and it's just wood chips as far as I can see. And I can't get away from the wood chipper. And it's just white everywhere else.
0: I mean, I can't speak for that specific dream. Uh, there might be a wood chip monster that's not genuinely not impossible in this world. I don't think I know of one, but uh, that's not an impossibility, yeah. I would definitely agree. That is that.
1: quite literally my favorite dreams, by the way. It's just me standing oh, in assumed, a white, yeah. empty space of, I guess, consciousness, and there's a wood chipper mm-hmm. that is coating, I guess, like the floor or the ground in wood chips. It's like, my entire sleep is just me standing next to a wood chipper running.
0: Interesting. That's... I feel like you've told me that before. That is a very interesting fever. I feel here.
1: like I should, like, speak to a psychiatrist about it. See what they think about I it. I would recommend yeah. it, yeah. Should probably speak to one that, that anyways. definitely
0: sounds like a good plan.
1: Get my shit squared away. <laughs> well,
0: definitely something to look into.
1: <laughs> anyways.
0: Uh. Yeah, so... These creatures can take on a lot of different forms. So, like, you got your typical demons, like, literally Nephilim is, um, there's, like, five or six different Nephilim in third edition, ranging in different size. There's, like, little baby ones. There's big fuck-off demons. Um, They can be doppelgangers. And for one of the masters, literal babies, there's a baby that you can field in um malifo baby cade and he like his whole thing is you can have any creature with the teddy keyword and they are like on your crew for free but they have like specifications that go around it but literal babies are something that uh the neverborn can use to kill you so that's always fun as well so just to touch a little bit on them again just a Bit of a recap of how they came about. uh Our knowledge. wait, if the Netherborn,
1: um, if the Neverborn use babies, does that mean that resputina counters hmm. the Neverborn?
0: I I will say I don't know if it's a real life baby or if it's a oh, demon okay. baby. But so if it, but possibly, if it were like a baby
1: the size bad. of like say her daughter, Resputina is a fine pick into she, the Neverborn. Okay. Mm-hmm
0: also if it's a real baby especially because rasputina drowned hers Corkrun from our uh current pirate D, &D, or sorry pathfinder campaign also a direct counter to the neverborn drowning children um so just a little touch on what they are again so when we first broke through the great boundary uh and got out of malifo city and started exploring some tombs around malifo they started reawakening. There seemed to have not been a lot of them around. Uh, probably a couple still here and there. But that's when they really started coming about and killing everything again. Uh, not much is really known what their goals are, like, specifically. My best assumption is that they're trying to kill everyone that isn't them. Like, they view this as their world. If you came through the Great Boundary, they don't want you there. This is their world. Get the fuck out. Um, They seem to kill pretty indiscriminately overall. But that is not to say that the attacks are not, like, planned and executed in a very certain manner. Uh, But more that, like, they don't care if they're killing the guild. They don't care if they're killing Arcanists, Resurrectionists, Outcasts. Killing is killing
1: yeah you know yeah like uh orcs for 40k
0: oh sorry pretty much yeah war is war always good so the first one that we're introduced to is when she is attacking rasputina um and this is lilith mother of monsters first of her name queen of the andals lady of the seven uh sorry wrong universe um she is my queen sorry i need to stop uh Lilith is the first named Neverborn ever encountered in Malifaux. Um, And she's kind of the one that shows to the world, oh, these aren't indiscriminate attacks. Like, she's very clearly intelligent and knows what she's doing. And even if we don't know it, she has a plan of some extent. And, like, things are happening in a very certain order. And that's what, like, really... Kind of got the public off of its ass in like went oh, Neverborn is a threat. Like we need to we need to deal with this. Um, she is the one of the most prominent Neverborn. She along with Seamus, a uh, resurrectionist that we will get into, kind of trades places on any given day for the number one most wanted criminal in Alpha. Gotcha. She is also one of the three leaders of the Neverborn, along with Pandora in Zoradia. So, Pandora, to hop into next. That's really all we know about Lilith, is she attacked Rasputina, and she's in charge and very feared. Like, tear... her name will strike tear into anyone in Malifor. Right,
1: and uh, she's my queen.
0: She is my queen. Um, so, Pandora... Hasn't had any stories yet, only been mentioned once or twice. Um, She appears as a human woman to most and realistically as a succubus in like to ground in something. She is, there's, people describe as a very oppressive atmosphere when you enter into Malifaux. Uh, She is the one that is blamed for this on a whole. Her followers are known as woes. And her art and abilities contain the box opens. So kind of like how we said, like, they're grounding things in the real world. I think she might be, like, the literal interpretation of, like, the mythological story of Pandora in Pandora's box. Like, if we're seeing, if our dreams are a vision into another world, having a character that is Pandora... Makes a lot of sense, you know, yeah. and that's like where a lot of the bad things seem to come from, especially being in the Never. I'm a
1: huge fan of her followers being called the Woes.
0: I like it as well. That's yeah. so.
1: That's just like so on theme. Anyways,
0: mm-hmm. she is the one that has uh, baby Cade. He is one of her woes. Um, so the final master is Zoradia, and she is a steampunk Baba Yaga like straight up it's so fucking cool hang on hang on what's her
1: name Mm -hmm. uh oh because unless you uh misspelled it here uh there isn't an i after the d it looks like zoraida yeah so there's no i after the d there's one before the d but there's no i after the d which would end with the dia so it would be Zerada or Zerida, not Zeradia yes, I, or Zeridia. Yes, I am
0: mispronouncing it then. Yes, I agree. Um,
1: I so just had to do that Zerida. now so that you no, think that, about it yeah, the entire time. Really and any better. sort of practice uh, you did in your head is now out the window. And you're going to stumble through this next I, section.
0: You think I practice as I write. I appreciate Everybody that, knows that we true. don't
1: go through this shit beforehand.
0: But... She is literally a steampunk version of Baba Yaga, and I really love it. Uh, she is, or will be in the future, she is a split master, which is not that uncommon. She is both part of the Neverborn and the Bayou factions. Okay. When people, she's a fortune teller at heart, but what people don't really realize is that not only does she tell the fate, she controls it. A little bit as well she has some undisclosed influence over the threads of fate and can pull them as she wants to get her to accomplish her goals now only the foolhardy really seek out her knowledge Uh, either you're desperate or you don't know what you're actually getting into when you go and seek her out Uh, she's People speculate she may be at the heart of the bayou, but with everything in the bayou, they don't really – no one's, like, measured it out. No one's actually trying to figure out if she's in the heart of the bayou or not. When you're looking for her, people are simply told to follow the frogs because as you're going in, the sound of frogs will get louder and louder and louder until you're very close And then there will be a deafening, almost maddening silence that has driven people insane before finding her. Now, the coolest part, and why I say she is a steampunk Baba Yaga, is the hut she is on is very precarious. It rocks back and forth, um, and the biggest part is it moves around on giant mechanical legs so it is literally a fortune teller in the house on foul hot on foul legs within the bayou which is just so fucking cool i absolutely love it
1: yeah that's that's pretty cool
0: i'm a very big fan so that's kind of the neverborn um not a lot's known about them. we know a bit about the masters um a couple people have gone to zaredia already zaredia sorry uh, I definitely already have that in my head. Gonna have to fix that. Yep. they have gone to her and uh, gotten a couple missions from her. One of the outcasts that we're gonna talk about in a second actually has. That's the main person that we've seen talk to her so far. So moving into the outcasts, to be honest, it's kind of a catch-all for you don't fit into the other
1: factions. Oh, would you say that they're outcasts?
0: yeah exactly like of course like that's definitely how it works yeah but, like it's definitely like the outcasts a couple of them happen to be working together but like that's not the point at all like they just happen to be working together uh um, well what's
1: cool they're... about them having an outcast faction is that they can explore like some other creative mind spaces instead of like would a member of the guild actually do such and such? Well, no, because that's against the mm-hmm. the guild or the arcanist or you know whatever faction insert here. The outcast can do, right. and be you know, outside of those sort of restrictions, so it's it's yep. like you know it's kind of like oh yeah they're outcasts you know they're all uh, catch all but, but like yeah it's creative space for yeah. the game designers too.
0: Exactly. It definitely makes sense that it's there. Um, And the cool thing with them is because of kind of how Malifaux in the world works, if you're hearing about an outcast, it means they're, like, pretty fucking powerful. Because if you don't have, like, the backing of the guild, the arcanists, if you're not a demon, if you don't have necromancy, to be able to still be known and be powerful is like a pretty big achievement like it takes a lot to like rise up and like make something of yourself so being a known outcast not that they're known officially as outcasts in the world of course but like being known as that means that like they're pretty powerful which is pretty cool as well so like we're not getting like some little bitch ass like oh they're gonna die in two stories I mean maybe we will but like it doesn't seem that way especially because Malefoy is so character based it doesn't seem like killing someone's going to be a very big deal it's not just going to be out of nowhere although i say that but that i won't get into that yet we'll get into that later um, so the first one our first master for the outcast that we're introduced to is Leviticus and his apprentice Alice now leviticus is also very cool i'm gonna say that for all of them they're all really fucking cool of course they are i'm very into this world of course i'm gonna enjoy them all steampunk necromancer though that doesn't fall in with the resurrectionists he's one of the few people that actually came to malifaux to find his own fortune and to like further his craft and like be better at what he does so he kind of creates cyborgs in Malifaux, he's very into replacing the weak flesh of man with metal and machinery. He has I believe an arm and a leg of his own removed and has a robotic replacement in there with it. And that's kind of like what he does. He replaces, it's like prosthetics basically. But they're magical prosthetics that have a little bit of necromancy tied in them. Um, What he does overall is um, completely legal. He's, of course, does some, like, back-alley stuff, but, like, he's a just, like, a respected death surgeon or whatever they're called, whatever his official title is, but, like, he's not an outlaw at all. He's, like, totally fine with the guild, I assume fine with the Arcanists to some extent, uh, or maybe he doesn't associate with them, I don't know, but, like, he's very much is above board in most cases. Some people alice his um compatriot is a little young and people have some questions about that but it seems pretty much like she is genuinely just his apprentice okay and there's nothing going on there there might be later on especially yeah. but like so far it's been pretty clear that that is not true
1: by the way right now he... in my mind i'm spinning a pathfinder build to make uh, leviticus because i know you can I'm just trying to get all the pieces working so that, you know, it captures him uh, perfectly and you know what? I'll have it by our next episode.
0: Okay. Okay. Here, let me drop you a picture of him. So, you know, a little bit more what you're shooting for. All right. And I will
1: describe him here. Mm -hmm. Uh, okay. So, um, blown back hair, uh, male, male pattern baldness. Um, he does have a prosthetic on his uh, left arm, and he's got some tubes uh, roaming around his body from his back, along with a like uh, uh, it's connected to his cane or something like that. Um, looks like he has like little lightning nodes on his shoulder pads, and uh, he's wearing a lab coat. So, mm. I mean, just think of like. Uh, like your typical mad scientist trying to animate life, like uh, a la Dr. Frankenstein Oh, no, 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 we're getting
0: to him. He's he's coming in resurrectionist.
1: Oh, okay. Dif- different. Um, and then.
0: Yeah. It looks like it's processing. Uh, there is Alice as well, his co worker. Okay. So if you're looking to build with leadership, there's your co-worker.
1: Okay, so she'll be a gunslinger um she looks a little goth but you know that could just be like the gothic setting here um Mm. yeah well i'll have to like look into her a little bit more to see how i can build her as a cohort just off Mm -hmm. the top of my mind there is um a wizard archetype that gives you leadership to train another wizard and uh there's a feat to literally replace one. body parts with undead body parts and i know that you know about that one so we've talked about yep, that, that one That one i'm
0: a little aware of certainly a little aware of that yeah
1: one. so continue
0: mm-hmm. so um to connect a couple of the masters up uh leviticus has had some brief talks with sonia creed okay um not too much was discussed they actually talk a little bit about uh the next master we're gonna get into and something that she has that they kind of want or at least it seems that they want it at least and his assistant alice is also currently with the next master we're going to discuss victoria so we're introduced to victoria as she crosses the boundary the great boundary into malifaux she is riding in a train car with just, I believe just herself, Leviticus, and Alice. Uh, she, we learn, is a bounty hunter that definitely seems to specialize in assassination. When she talks to Zareda, uh, she makes kind of an offhand comment about not what is the mark, who is the mark. Because the question is never what, but who. So it's she's definitely an assassin, I think, more than a bounty hunter, but she's a fucking good one. She's a really, really good one. Um, when she gets on to the train, both Leviticus and Alice notice her sword. This is a very notable sword, even on Earth. Um, it's said that, A, she was a relic hunter, in addition to being the bounty hunter that she is on Earth, in that her collection of artifacts um, exceeds any gauge of appraisal. So, the fact that she's coming to Malifaux to do more and more powerful jobs is, like, even more of a statement on who she is and, like, what her driving force is. She's definitely just a bounty hunter, but the... what seems to be the most valuable piece of her collection, she carries with her at all times. And it's her sword. And this is rumored to be the lost, I'm going to butcher this name, the lost Nihanto of Masamune, who is a real-life Japanese considered to be the best Japanese swords maker to have ever lived. And there is even a story, I believe they found it at this point, there was even a story about one of his lost swords that people have been looking for for decades and decades and decades. So she has one of these swords. She doesn't ever outright say it, but, like, 100% for sure that's what it is. Gotcha. Um, as I said with the Outcasts, very highly renowned for her work. She does. She's good at what she does, and people know it. She's not quite, like, a household name, of course, because no one knows the name of bounty hunters. But, like, if you're in that kind of a circle, yeah. you absolutely know who she is, for sure. Especially with... After what we're going to discuss, people 100% know her. Um, now, the real defining feature of Victoria outside of her sword is actually the person that she works with the most. Herself. So when they're traveling to a place place called Kathira, and we will get there eventually, not in the faction focus, I want to do probably a breakdown of kind of the 1e book or one of the books like as a whole story so we'll get there but she's traveling there with alice as are most of the masters that we've discussed that's kind of where the first book ends she's on her way there they get into a carriage with um a girl named dora and her child whose name doesn't fucking matter it's not um a baby cane Actually it fucking might be baby. <laughs> Did you just I think the kid's name might be Cade and I just didn't put it together until just now. Oh man, um, that's great. It is not important for the context of what I'm talking about though. So they get gassed and attacked. The um Dora is 100% Pandora. I'm shocked. For sure. Exactly. Um and when she wakes up, she's in kind of like this dreamlike state and she starts getting attacked by a never-born clone of herself, or I suppose a doppelganger is probably a better word for it. I mean, the story is literally called The Doppelganger. So that's more more apt, I'm sure. Now in the final moment, she down, she's able to subdue, not kill, the copy of herself. And in the last seconds, it cries out to her something along the lines of, Behind you! And as if she's looking through the clone's eyes, she sees Pandora running up at her with a knife and is able to expertly just position her Masamune sword behind her and cut through the visage of Pandora. Waking everyone from the dream. When she wakes, there is still a clone of her there. And uh, they, over the course of a little bit figure out that they're basically clones. She kind of comes to the realization of, like, maybe if something happened to me on Earth, would this have just taken my place? What does this mean? Like, all of that kind of stuff. And further along the line, further than I have read, um, people start to go, like, holy shit, she is so skilled. Is it, like, she's in two places at once? Like, how is she moving this fast? Like, people don't get it because there is in some people when they appear together just assume she has a twin not many people can kind of see through the neverborn facade unless you're like really looking for it so that's the person that she really works with the most in fact in i believe all of the editions, but for sure first and second from the cards that i've read um it's one of the only models that you're allowed to run two of because it's literally the same person, but one of them is a Neverborn. She is also, as of right now, and I mean, as as mentioned in the book, is the only person to befriend and work with a Neverborn in any capacity whatsoever.
1: That's so pretty it's cool. it's a
0: very interesting dynamic that they've kind of tied into the outcast
1: as well. She is just so full of herself and thinks so highly of herself that when she was cloned, the clone looks at like i guess the original and is like mm-hmm. well that's the only thing that's as good as me and so now they just like what work together that's actually like hilarious
0: <laughs> yeah it is it's great i absolutely love it anything any character and i don't want to say like they are narcissistic because like that's not exactly the vibe but like it definitely kind of is like there's a little thing when they're traveling she has the clone like tied her own uh, her hands tied to the pommel of the saddle that they're traveling on because the cart they were traveling in got absolutely fucked, <laughs> obviously. Um, and there's like a this little offhanded comment about like, I go to make a joke and she automatically knows the punchline. Like, they are they're separate people but like, clearly this isn't like something mimicking her. It like, to some degree is her. They are the same, even though they're not. Type of individual. gotcha. So our final outcast is, of course, the best boy in will be regardless, or will be my favorite, regardless of what happens in the story of this world. Summer Teeth Jones. Now, Summer is a gremlin. Uh, the goblins of this universe, as you know, goblins have always been my favorite race personally in just like most settings they're just always so fun and malifo absolutely does not disappoint uh when the guild began to encroach on the lands of the bayou which is kind of a decent distance out from especially Malafo city proper but even like there's a decent stretch of land in between that anyways um summer was one of the first ones to band the gremlins together to fight them off so him and the Bayou boys spent some time observing them to just kind of get a feel from them and see how they're going to fight them off. And this gave Sommer a realization in the guild, the man with the biggest hat that was the loudest was in charge. So he decided this is going to be his personality to the point where his tabletop keyword is big hat. (laughs) <laughs> that is the defining feature of him. He has a massive top hat and he is very loud because that's what he views as being as in charge, as dictated by what he saw in the guild, which is just fucking hilarious to me. God damn it. I love goblins so much. Um, so when we talked about him before, I actually did get one thing wrong. I was kind of misremembering it a little bit. Uh, when they were conducting a raid, this is how he got his name, how he got the name of Somerteeth Jones. I don't know what he was called beforehand. We only know him as Somerteeth. It might be uh, Jones. It might just be Jones. That's very likely. Um, So they were conducting a raid and an assault or whatever it was, something against the guild, and he got hit in the face with a rifle butt Hard enough, if a blow that would have killed a hog, I said he got the injury wrestling a hog himself, cause goddamn if that doesn't sound like some Bayou ass shit, um, cause it absolutely is. I believe there's there's like a luchador gremlin that like literally does wrestle hogs, so that isn't like completely out of line, but I misremembered it a little bit. So he stood up from this blow that should have killed a hog, spit out some teeth, saying. Sommer here, and then proceeded to rip the teeth out of the skull of the man that hit him, proclaiming, "Sommer there," <laughs> and unfortunately he hasn't had any stories yet, which made me very upset. But I'm really looking forward to them.
1: That's that's a pretty great uh, origin story, regardless of which Isn't one it, it is, wrestling a hog or getting hit in the face and then ripping the teeth out of another man's skull. Both are amazing. Uh,
0: Like I said, I know that he, for a good deal of time, is in charge of the Bayou, but then he kind of, I think he pisses them off a little bit, but his son Lenny Jones is then just unanimously voted to be the leader of the Bayou, but it's his son, so he's just a fucking the puppet leader for Somer, so he's still like realistically in oh charge, for sure even if he's not technically in charge so that wraps up the outcasts for now and we will hop into the last faction for the day the resurrectionists um get your heart on ready we're talking about necromancy just for you
1: oh i'm rubbing my nipples over here oh i'm
0: sure so to quote the book Their practices are particularly appalling to the citizens of Malifaux, who already must contend with the occupational dangers of the mines and the nightmare spawn of the Neverborn. That some of the most terrible monsters this world knows are fellow men and women, former friends and family, is a grim realization.
1: That's a perfect quote.
0: It really is, isn't it? It really kind of just encapsulates necromancy to those that don't practice it
1: encompasses the entirety of malifaux perfectly just there's all these bad things and the worst people are the guys standing next to you
0: yep oh that demon oh yeah that demon will kill you and rip your eyes out but this guy next to you will slit your throat and bring you back after using your soul to power bringing you back to life yeah. which is worse it's again similar to 40k not to always bring 40k into things it's like what's worse getting devoured by a tyranid you're gonna just be used for biomass or sent into the warp you're turned into a demon now or dealing with the inquisition which is just a whole nother fucking shit show that we don't have time to get into um So, along with the Neverborn, these are like probably, the Resurrectionists are probably the second biggest threat, only because they don't really band together at all. So, Resurrectionists aren't only fighting Neverborn in the guild, in the Arcanists, they're also fighting the other Resurrectionists, vying for the same power that they're going at. So, um, the guild, I said that the guild, like, kind of created their own enemies in a lot of ways, except with, like, the Neverborn kind of, like, you can blame them for that, but, like, it didn't matter who came in first, like, whoever the first people in were gonna wake up the Neverborn, so, like, I wouldn't necessarily blame them outright for that. Um, they really kind of created the Resurrectionists, though, as we talked about, there's, like, Giant swaths of land that are quarantined and you're not allowed to go into for sake of the Neverborn being there, and they'll fucking kill you. What happened is when necromancy was made illegal, which was like immediately as soon as it was discovered, obviously, people really weren't fans of that. Even though we're in like a grim, dark, wild west where they're killing orphans to power magic, necromancy is still like a step too right. far. Which, understandable, I'm not going to argue that at all. Like, that definitely makes sense. I'll be the
1: one to argue it. Um,
0: yeah, you can definitely argue against that. Um, So, as the guild tried to stop it, it, it really became a bigger problem because they drove them into the quarantine zones. That was, like, the only place where they could really practice necromancy without, like, immediately being found out. And... While they've had to combat the Neverborn that live there, if they're able to, A, it means they're incredibly powerful in a very similar way to the Outcasts. Um, If we know about a Resurrectionist, they're pretty fucking powerful because they have to fight off all of these different things to be as strong as they are. And what they found is in the quarantine zones, in the areas that old Malifaux used to be completely populated, there were massive libraries and a lot of them had tomes regarding necromancy and its practices so when they pushed them into the quarantine zone when the guild pushed them into the quarantine zone what they actually did is kind of give them more power because they showed them the way to the things that made them stronger they showed them the way to these books that told them how to practice necromancy more and there's there is some shared knowledge like when a crime occurs um there's a lot of similar symbology in things or like devices that are used are very similar even though necromancers are resurrectionists um very often uh work alone like they might have like one person that they work with or they're working with the things that they bring back to life they're not like they're not like the arcanist they're not going to form a resurrectionist guild that's not how it works so the real thing with the Resurrectionists, not necessarily a total end goal, but to one of the Masters, certainly an end goal. Um, there's like kind of a mention of like this dark patron known as the Grave Spirit. Now, to some, this is just like a you know a metaphor of you're performing necromancy. Where does it come from? How does this happen? It's it's the Grave Spirit. It's just like a conceptual thing. It's not like a, an entity in and of itself. You know what I mean? Yeah. But to some, the grave spirit is incredibly real. In in like kind of like a warlock patron sort of way, like you are doing things for it. It is granting you more power based upon that. That kind of a thing. Like it's a very real driving force of the resurrectionist. That's what they're doing um so using all of that information many resurrectionists have just kind of created these massive like i don't want to say castle like but like these massive holdout shelters where they're just constantly fighting the neverborn and the other resurrectionists that are trying to take their information and every once in a while the guild trying to conduct a raid which they've more or less like given up on unless they find someone that's like really close to a quarantine line because it's just way too fucking risky to go against the neverborn and the Resurrectionist at the same time because like neither of them are going to fight against like neither of them are going to team up with you to fight the other and even if they do then they're just going to turn around and kill you anyways right. so they kind of stopped doing that, but every once in a while there have been... That's how we know um, what we know about how the guild knows what they know about Resurrectionists is they found a massive library there. Uh, doers Library. D-U-E-R-S. Apostrophe S. Um, this is discovered by the guild. I'm assuming discovered by some Resurrectionists first as well. Uh, it, it's where they find found what was kind of considered the Rosetta Stone of the age. That's how they were like able to translate things from the old time in Malifaux into current English. Gotcha. That's what they based everything off of. So that was in the quarantine zone and also contained a lot of information on necromancy. Um. Oh, and this is just a... I'd say it's like kind of standard in a lot of things that involve necromancy, but it's a good point of clarification. When a body is reanimated, um, especially if the soul was captured in a soul stone, it is not the person it once was. It is just basically an undead puppet. Like that's all it is. It's not. You don't get resurrected and you're still yourself type of
1: thing. Gotcha. I mean, that's that's like common across most. Um, areas where necromancy is like a big thing. It's like...
0: Exactly, yeah. You know. I'd say, or in the case of our first Resurrectionist, uh, he has undead dancers, other than puppets. And this is okay. Seamus the Mad Hatter. He is known other than Lilith when they're trading places as Malifo's most wanted criminal. His escapades throughout the city terrify all of its inhabitants, uh, and he can generally be seen with his undead bells, a troop of showgirls taken from Madame Sabil's saloon. I'm probably just pronouncing it that way because of uh, Divinity 2, but that's how I'm going to pronounce it regardless. Uh, tales of his misdeeds make it breachside. So they're going to Earth. Oh my god. His, what he's doing is so fucked up most of the time just him appearing in public has prompted riots from the masses, which of course gives him plenty of time to commit whatever crime he was there to commit in the first (laughs) place. Um, And he is one of the resurrectionists that does in fact believe in the grave spirit, and he would do nearly anything to work for it and further his craft so when you say believe in Uh,
1: the grave spirit you mean uh, believe in the grave spirit as like a single entity rather than like an idea similar to like the great beyond it's like nope that is the spirit of the grave and I'm here to appease it gotcha Mm,
0: I am quite literally appeasing the spirit of death it is a real thing and I am working for it
1: directly gotcha Uh,
0: second In our lineup of necromancers is dr. Douglas McMorning and as I've said I don't necessarily like to draw like very direct comparisons to like existing characters but also 100% McMorning is a much cooler version of Dr. Frankenstein 100% Uh, he is an absolutely manic doctor in charge of the city morgue when he went to Malifaux he was very much trying to further The practice of science further the practice of medicine but he slowly kind of discovered necromancy and it started to corrupt him and draw him into it more and he became a very powerful resurrectionist Um, his position in the guild is uh, very recognized he's like respected more or less I believe this kind of drops off towards the end of the book a little bit but like he does autopsies he runs the morgue. He's just in charge of that kind of things. And he especially does it on crimes that are attributed to the resurrectionists. Like there's one character, Molly squid Pidge, who is very much associated with Seamus. He's like, she's the one character that he's like really chasing after for the whole book to like re resurrect her. That's like his whole driving point in the first book, more or okay. less. Um, and Mick Morning is the one that does the autopsy on her so that's my guess of like how he kind of got exposed to necromancy in the first place is so many people dying and just seeing the work of resurrectionists uh that's probably how he kind of got into necromancy of, of his own accord.
1: okay so to your um, knowledge does the guild know that he's a necromancer
0: I think they may know it at the end of one of the stories. He was kind of really forced to flee, but I think he covered his tracks pretty well because he was working with Seamus. Seamus kind of made a whole distraction that like blew up half the morgue. Oh, <laughs> uh, to say specifically to save mom. Okay, but they weren't as always like I said resurrectionists don't do anything for free they're not working with each other to further each other's gain there was very much things were trading hands uh Seamus gave him some new technology and a new way to do things that hasn't really been talked about other than the fact that he reanimated only a skull of a guy that is very important to the story of course um and he's just like hilariously talking to it the whole time like he just keeps this head reanimated head in a bag and then just like takes it out and like makes some wisecracks to it and then is like alright well that's enough of that and then just puts him back in the fucking bag (laughs) it's pretty great a little Um, hamlet for you there exactly and to further our Dr. Frankenstein analogy a little bit more uh, McMorning has a I wrote Servant, um, the guy that's with him all of the time, Sebastian. He's just Igor. That's all he really is, but he's kind of like a wise cracking self-aware Igor okay. as well, which is pretty good. Um, so definitely at one point, um, the guild was starting to get a little suspicious of McMorning, so they, as well as most of the Resurrectionists, forced him into the quarantine zones which the main way to find that now is going through the sewers because if you go through any of the like normal checkpoints it's just kill on site with the guild they have people watching them oh, all okay, the time gotcha. so you have to go through the sewers but in the book even it described his lab in the quarantine zone as a stereotypical mad scientist lab to the point that if he weren't so evil, it would be comical. So, like, he is quite literally a more powerful, much cooler Dr. Frankenstein. (laughs) And obviously, he's using the uh, cadavers from the morgue once they're no longer useful, or I assume once they're cremated, he'll just take them instead and throw some ashes out or whatever. And that's where he's, like, getting his power to, like, be practicing things more and more. It said that, like, when he's going through the sewers, he has to be pretty careful of, like, the resurrectionist beasts that are just down there. Because when he has a failed experiment, he's just like, oh, that's fucked. Into the fucking sewers with you, I guess. <laughs> and that's how he fucking treats things. And so a lot of them aren't super happy with him, as you understand. Yeah. So he has to be kind of careful going through the sewers even to get to where he needs to go. Um, the last of our resurrectionists and the last master that we will cover tonight is uh Nicodem the Undertaker. He, as well, has not had a story as of yet, but he is, uh, as you could probably guess, an undertaker that robs the graves that he tends. That's nice, very <laughs> much his thing. Um, he's kind of—he seems like he's gonna be pretty interesting. He's viewed as like pretty respectable and kind hes described as a gentleman criminal. Like he'll be very polite to your face, and then as soon as you turn around, take out a pistol and shoot you in the back of the fucking head. Oh. He is very strongly anti-guild. Like everyone's a little bit anti-guild, but like that is seems to be what is going to be his driving force throughout of course most resurrectionists don't like this they're (laughs) immediately outlaws for doing their thing but he is very much that way his goal as listed kind of is um to overthrow the governor very specifically and replace him with a lord of the dead to quote um i'm not sure what this is yet i'm not sure if in this context a lord of the dead is like what seamus views as the grave spirit or if they're just talking about a necromancer a necromancer is a lord of the dead in this world that would kind of make equal sense it's not really clarified as of yet but he views necromancy and why he uses it as a power that the guild will never have and they are too afraid to use it so they will use it against them and create an undead empire under them or over them i suppose so he seems like he could also be pretty interesting to see where that goes and how much he's going to like he's trying to raise a rebellion against the guild as a necromancer so that could be very cool i don't know if he's gonna try and like tie all of the resurrectionists together or just like on his own
1: well just
0: do it 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 could be very
1: if i had to guess it would be on his own most necromancers in any sort of world are extremely selfish and power hungry so something Mm -hmm. and it seems to be reflected in the world as well um here that we're talking about so i would say he's he's probably just like trying to amass an undead army and then uh, seat himself on the throne, so to speak. So,
0: exactly, that is definitely also my guess as to what will happen.
1: Seems pretty cool, though. Yeah, the
0: Resurrectionists seem like a very, a fun faction. Sheamus is, I don't want to call him hilarious. He is pretty funny. Um, like he's, I'm here. He looks like a, looks like a fucking leprechaun. Oh God. <laughs> Except, uh, not exactly. He has like some aesthetics of it and some that aren't of it in his one of his models that I will try and find. Yes, here we go. He's just fucking a shirtless Chad with this undead.
1: Oh oh my god.
0: It's kind of fucking fantastic. Like, Sheamus is pretty great. I very much do enjoy It's it. hard to
1: tell, but it looks like he's got a fistful of her hair.
0: It really does look like that, yeah. If
1: if that's the alternate model, why are they not just calling these saloons brothels? Like I you know what I mean? Oh
0: no I <laughs> no no. One hundred percent where um Sheamus took his undead bells from Was either a burlesque show or a burlesque. Okay. That is not in question. The one in question was more of Rasputina. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Or I'd say, I suppose, what does it... Let me pull that up. It was... No, because it was uh, Madame Sebille's Saloon, not Salon.
1: Oh, okay. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah.
0: And I definitely didn't misspell the Salon because I copied that. Gotcha. So yeah that is they are two different things so i'm not exactly sure they're 100 they are showgirls that is like non-question sheamus is literally just reviving he because that's what he sound he finds funny. is using
1: necromancy to be a pimp
0: he honestly kind of is
1: let's just simplify his his character that a lot of people spent a lot of time uh perfecting and writing into just he uses necromancy to make himself a pimp.
0: Mm-hmm. And I'm really hoping he doesn't fuck them. I'm just... I am I know he does. Like, for sure he <laughs> does. But I'm just hoping that the book never covers it so I don't ever have to think about it. Although, I will say, when um, McMorning does the autopsy of Molly Squidpidge, he hands the judge some pictures... Uh, not the judge, the judge of uh, over here, sure, like the yeah. autopsy in the trial that Seamus is going through, even though he's not captured at all. Um, he hands him some pictures, and he's like, "These are brand new. What are you?" T-? It's like these were clearly taken two weeks ago, and he's like, "No, I took them today." Whatever magic he's using is like perfectly preserving her. Like she looks, she doesn't look like a corpse at all. She just looks like she died and has been exactly preserved that way where many of the other bells are absolutely ro- absolutely rotting to death but not to death obviously right. um she is not that way so it maybe that's like a stronger version of what he's doing a specific version of it to like preserve her a little more i'm not exactly sure but it seems that there is something
1: to So it. he's uh, Seamus is obsessive over Molly.
0: Yes, one hundred percent. Yes. Okay. There, there is a whole thing where um, Rasputina kind of interferes with that. I don't recall it completely, so I don't want to like misquote it. But that's like where I was like, you recognize Snow bitch, big fucking fur coat. Like it wasn't named in there, but it's like, oh, that's yeah, what it's that gotta is. be. And then. Later on, they actually do fight in like completely fuck up one of the biggest train stations in Malifo, and they're like, "Ah, oh, we meet again, you bitch!" And he's like, "She's like, yeah, what the fuck, man? What are you doing? Knock it off! Quit resurrecting people!" And he's not having it. And he's just like talking to the head the whole time. <laughs> it's great. He had he brings out like um a soul stone powered flamethrower. That's kind of incredible. <laughs> and he's, ju- he's just kind of this idiot as well. He's like, ah, we might be a little outmatched here, Molly. We got to get out of here. Uh, throws a smoke grenade down, and Rasputina just goes, wind powers, what are you fucking doing? Yeah. And he's just like, ah, right, <clears throat> shit, now what?
1: All right, well to uh wrap up here because we are now 45 minutes past what we normally record to uh that was the factions of malifaux uh as presented by ian because he's the one that's been doing the reading on malifaux and uh i've been sitting here learning about it uh in real time and having a lot of fun with it
0: well i'm glad that you are it's there's a lot to it and obviously the just world primer of the last episode could be covered a little quicker i wanted to give like a decent dive into all of these to just get like a good feel for all of them without like super telling the stories of yeah them yet, which will probably be next yeah
1: when movie. we get into stories we'll have at least motivations of some big names um as well as just like overarching motivations of each faction so We'll have a little bit of, exactly. of grounding in that in that respect. So, um, This was the Bad Tooties Podcast. I've been Ian. Uh, I have been Tyler.
0: And uh, thanks for listening. Catch us next episode where we discuss more Malifaux or possibly some magic. Who knows?
1: And uh, I will be building out... Um, oh, fuck. What is his name? Le- Leviticus.
0: Leviticus and Alice.
1: I will build both of them. As pathfinder characters so that you all can listen to my lovely voice because i know you missed it this episode and for that <laughs> i apologize greatly